you very much, Mark. Um, it's rather awe-inspiring to be speaking in such surroundings, um, but it's a great topic um, to be asked to address, can we trust the Bible? In many parts of the world today, people go a long way and are even prepared to pay with their lives to have a Bible. In this country, um, William Tyndale paid that high price, living in fear of reprisals, unable to return to England from the continent, because he wanted to translate the Bible into English. I myself have been involved in getting Bibles into unlikely places, such as the Taliban's military headquarters in Afghanistan, but that's a whole other story. You can ask me about that afterwards if you want to. In this session together, we're going to be examining the Bible and asking whether both its construction and its message can be trusted today. Is the Bible, in other words, historically and morally reliable? So why don't we begin with historically and start by asking the question, what's the Bible made of? Of course, you all know that it's a, it's a collection of 66 books divided into the two sections, Old and New Testament, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. The Bible was written over a period of 1600 years by more than 40 authors. And these were people from all kinds of different backgrounds. There were kings, diplomats, um, people from more humble backgrounds like the prophet Amos, who was a dresser of sycamore fig trees, which was a very humble job in his society. There were fishermen and a tent maker, the apostle Paul. Of course, the Bible was originally written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek. And it was written on three continents, Africa, Asia and Europe. And then this vast spread of the Bible's social, geographical and cultural original contexts are followed on by a multiplication of diversity as the manuscripts were copied and translated into other languages and spread throughout the known world from ancient times. And that means that there are a vast number of ancient manuscripts to be examined when we talk about the text of the Bible. Now, when you think about any kinds of ancient writing, the integrity of a particular text is determined by the number of documented manuscripts and fragments of such manuscripts that we have to examine and the time distance between the original composition of the text and the surviving manuscripts. So we might take, for example, um, the writer Plato. And um, when we look at his writing, there might be 10 existing copies of the ancient manuscripts which are available to study. And we can compare in order to determine accuracy and the quality of transmission of his writings. And the oldest copy would be dating from around 1400 years after it was originally written. And that would be considered um, a fairly reliable, um, interesting textual tradition. The text is respected and read in the present day. When it comes to the Bible, there are thousands of handwritten manuscripts in the Greek language. And um, these don't, are, are not separated from the original composition by 1400 years, um, but by much less than that, as we'll, go on to, we'll, we'll come on to see. Many of the earliest manuscripts are separated only by decades from their originals. 
So what are we talking about? Well, in, the, uh, in terms of the materials used, well, in the uh, early Christian era there, uh, era, there were two types of writing material. One was papyrus, that was a highly um, durable reed from the Nile Valley, and it was glued together much like plywood would be today, laid out in the sun to dry. And uh, many of the 20th century remains of documents that have been found were on papyrus. They tend to often be smaller pieces because they've broken off um, uh, from, from their kind of original longer versions. The other material was called parchment. That's made from the skin of sheep or goats. And it was in wide use in the, in the, uh, until the Middle Ages when it came to be um, replaced by paper. So as far as the Greek manuscripts go, we have over 5,800 that have been catalogued. Um, and then these are joined by early Latin, Coptic, Syriac, Armenian, Georgian, and Gothic, and all sorts of other languages. So that the total witnesses to the New Testament have not even yet been counted, but they number in the tens of thousands. Well, what's the earliest piece of the New Testament that um, exists today? Well, up until um, about uh, the summer of 2011, the answer would have been a papyrus fragment of John's Gospel that's here in Britain in Manchester University. It's called the John Ryland's Papyrus. It was discovered in 1934, and it's a, a section of John's Gospel from John chapter 18. And it's believed to be from the early um, second century, from around between 110 and 120 AD. So certainly within the lifetime of um, the Apostle John. But on February the 1st, uh, 2012, um, a scholar called Dan Wallace made rather a surprise announcement um, in a debate. And um, he referred to a whole number of documents that have recently, uh, had recently been discovered in a collection um, kept in Turkey. And one of these documents is uh, a papyrus of Mark's Gospel, um, which is highly likely to date from the first century, according to one um, leading paleographer. And that's absolutely astounding, uh, giving us potentially the earliest um, a New Testament manuscript. So when we come to look at the Bible, um, we see that the textual attestation, at least of the New Testament, is unparalleled really with any other ancient writing, both in terms of the time between original composition and the surviving materials, and in terms of the numbers of surviving witnesses to the text. However, when it comes to looking at the Bible, there are other things that are important to us, I want to suggest. It's not just a question of textual accuracy, are, um, are the manuscripts as they were originally written, but there's another question, isn't there, that's important, and that is, can we rely on what has actually been recorded? The four Gospels, after all, claim to be based on eyewitness testimony. And if that's true, what they, what they record for us deserves to be taken seriously. But can we trust that claim? Can we trust um, that these are in fact based on eyewitness testimony? Well, when it comes to the Gospels, there are a few key questions that we can ask. And these have, some of these have been developed by a scholar based in Cambridge at Tyndale House um, called Pete Williams. And he helps us address these questions and think about whether what we're dealing with is just legend, blessed thoughts, or whether it's potentially historically accurate eyewitness testimony. And the first question is this, where were the Gospels written? 
Well, according to early Christian tradition, the four gospels were not written in the land of the origin of the stories that they contain. In other words, they were not written in Israel, Palestine. Um, overwhelmingly, Mark was written in Rome, probably. Luke was written in Antioch or possibly Rome. John was written in Ephesus. And Matthew was, was possibly written in Judea. Um, but, uh, or um, maybe um, Antioch. A sceptical scholar then may say, well, the Gospels are written outside of the land of the origin of their story. Why should we trust them? They have no direct or real connection with the events they claim to record. So if there's agreement within the traditions and um, there's, there is broad-based scholarly agreement that the Gospels were not written in the land of origin apart from possibly Matthew, we can ask questions about how well the writers knew the land that they were talking about. Do they know the geography, the agriculture, the botany, the architecture, the traditions, the burial practices, the economics, the language, the law, and even the personal names, the culture, if you like, of the period that they claim to describe? Now, if you've never visited a place, it's very difficult to get those kinds of details right. And that means that we can ask questions of the authors, even today, 2,000 years um, after they were written. So the next question is, do the characters get called the right thing by the writers? When we come to examine the time of Jesus, a study has been done um, quite recently, in fact, in 2002, of 3,000 names that people were called back in the time of Jesus, using archaeology and inscriptions and all sorts of sources. A study done on the usage of Jewish names in Palestine, and they show, it shows a different frequency of Jewish names used elsewhere outside of Palestine. So even though the Gospels are written outside of Palestine, we can now test, do they get the names right from the era and the location they purport to be based in? The scholar Richard Borgham in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, in 2006, took this scholarly study that had been done in 2002 and compared the Gospels with these other sources. And what this study shows is extraordinary. Taking Palestinian Jewish names in the first century, we see from the study the order of popularity. Number one, Simon. Two, Joseph. Three, Lazarus. Four, Judas. Five, John. Six, Jesus. And seven, Ananias. Okay, you'll recognize those names if you've read the New Testament. So if you take the nine top Jewish Palestinian male names together outside of the New Testament, they are 41% of name usage according to historians. And in the New Testament, they're 40%. And this is a pattern that shows up over four writers writing five books. The Gospels reflect this pattern both corporately and individually. Now, if you were to look at the study of Jewish male names in Egypt, so very close geographically to Palestine, what you would see is that a different pattern emerges. The most common Jewish male names in Egypt were, uh, at the time, um, Eleazar, Sabbateus, number three, Joseph, number four, Docetius, number five, Pappus, six, Ptolemaeus, and seven, Samuel. 
So very different from the, from the other list. Names like Sabbateus, Docetheus and Pappus are in the top 10 in Egypt, but they're not in the Gospels. Why not? Because the Gospels are not written about Jewish people living in Egypt. They're written about Jewish people living in Palestine. Now, if I were to ask you today, do you know the difference between the 10 most popular names in Egypt and the, and the 10 most popular names in Syria? As an outsider to that culture, living far away, you would find it difficult. And even an insider to the culture might find that difficult. Even with access to the internet, we might find it hard. I've recently been explaining to my eight-year-old twins that when I was at university, we had to look things up in books. You couldn't just go on Google to find out information. And they were amazed, astonished to discover that I hand wrote my essays at Oxford and handed them in with a fountain pen. They thought this was very, very strange. How could you check anything? How could you know if something was true or not without the internet? Well, the gospel writers get this detail right. How, how could they do that? Now, remember, this study has only been available to scholars since 2002. It's only been applied to the New Testament since 2006. This is an astonishing um, detail, I think, that gives us insight into the veracity, the truthfulness of the witnesses. The gospel writers don't just get the frequency of names right, they also get um, the, the kind of context of the names right. So, for example, where we see the gospel writers mention a popular name, they often distinguish that from, um, from other people with that same popular name. So if you see the name Simon, for example, in the list of disciples in Matthew 10, that's the most popular name. They knew that instinctively. So he's, he's disambiguated from other Samuels. He's the Samuel, Simon, sorry, called Peter and Andrew, his brother. But then when Philip is named, that was the 61st most popular name in the list. And the gospel writers, not having read the study, knew that because they understood the culture. They were eyewitnesses. And so there's no qualifier. He, he's just Philip. Similarly with Thaddeus, he's number 39. But when you come to Judas, he is distinguished from other Judases. We see this occurring in dialogue as well. I haven't got time to go into it. Um, so if you want to ask questions about that, you can come back to, to, back to me. Getting the names right is extremely difficult. I wonder if you've ever been to see a film at the cinema and you come back and you try to describe the film to a friend or a family member and you can remember lots of things about the plot, but you really struggle to remember the names. Names often drop out of accounts very quickly. So this is good evidence that the gospel writers were, ba were, were writing based on eyewitness testimony. A third question we could ask would be, do they know the place they are describing? Now, my knowledge of a city like Chicago is extremely limited, even though I've been there probably 20 times in my life. I've watched a TV programme based in Chicago and I have access to the internet. So I know that city really well, right? Wrong. Whenever I drive there, I definitely need the sat-nav and I'm terrified of, of, of the roads. 
Remember, the gospel writers were not writing in Palestine. They were writing in a different land. If they had not lived and ministered in Palestine, they were not eyewitnesses. Would their knowledge be what it was of the place? They're writing a long way away. Would they have known? Well, it's, it, would they have known about the place? It's fascinating to study. The most commonly mentioned place in the Gospels, unsurprisingly, is Jerusalem. We have 66 references. It's the capital city. The next is Nazareth. There are 21 references to Nazareth, the place where Jesus grew up. But there are other places mentioned too. Capernaum, Bethany, Bethlehem, Bethsaida, Jericho, Sidon, Tyre, Anon, Arimathea, Bethpage, Caesarea, Philippi, Cana, Chorazim, Nain. How would someone writing in Greece, Italy or Turkey know these names? Even a map from Rome would not have had some of the tiny villages. And yet the gospel writers know these names. The four gospels mention 12 to 14 towns each, a total of 23. Now, if you compare that to a gospel like the Gospel of Philip, which was written a long time after the events, not based on eyewitness testimony, the Gospel of Philip mentions two places, Jerusalem and Nazareth. And it talks of Nazareth as if it were Jesus's middle name rather than a place. The Gospel of Peter, again, a third century gospel, mentions only one place, Jerusalem. No other places are mentioned. That's what happens when you are more distant from the events you're recording. The gospel writers, in contrast, get the names, the features of names right and the frequency of names right, and they get the places right. So I wanted to give you a bit of an insight into some of the things that are emerging today in scholarship um, around uh, the New Testament. So we see it's an ancient piece of writing based on multiple manuscripts. The manuscript tradition is huge and well preserved. But then as we probe into it, we see that the New Testament itself contains this compelling evidence that it is based on eyewitness testimony. It can be trusted as we look at names, geography, culture. We could do a similar study on money and economic systems and the shape of houses and all sorts of things like that. So I suggest to you this evening that uh, the Bible is historically reliable. But what about morally? Now, um, Mark asked me to... to address these two sides of the question and there are a number of ways we could approach this we could ask well what about the wars in the old testament don't they call into question the moral portrait of the god of the bible and if you want to you can ask that in the q a time we can spend some time on that but i think a moral question that comes up um, time and time again today in my experience is isn't the bible sexist isn't its view of gender um, outdated and somehow morally questionable so we're just going to spend a few moments looking at that and then give you the opportunity to ask questions well throughout the bible um, there are numerous images of gender of uh, and, and numerous opportunities for women and um, stories which involve women. In the Old Testament, um, the first woman, Eve, is described as being created equally in the image of God with Adam. Eve is also described as a helper, which is sometimes unhelpfully interpreted um, to mean lesser or secondary in some way. In fact, the Hebrew word there, Eza, 
is a title that God uses of himself. So it's in no way a, a derogatory title. Eve, the woman, is the first recipient of a piece of theology. She's told by God after the fall that her, um, her progeny, her seed, will be the one who will crush the serpent's head. She's given this promise of a Messiah who will come and defeat evil. It's quite surprising. And as we read on through the Old Testament, we see a text like Proverbs 31, the primary teaching text of the Old Testament on, on a female role model. And she doesn't really conform to one stereotype of, of a religious woman. Proverbs 31 describes a woman who has the confidence of her community, who works hard running an international business, who's an employer, she employs other people. She gets up early and she provides for her family and her employees. She buys and sells significant investments. She owns property. She's entrepreneurial and wealth creating. She cares for the poor. She clothes her household well and is dressed beautifully herself. We have this amazing, um, high-achieving woman commended there in the pages of the Old Testament. There were women who were prophetesses, who were God's mouthpiece. One such woman was called Miriam, another was called Huldah, who were given that tremendous privilege of, of speaking God's word to their society. In the Old Testament, women and men were equal in prayer. Women prayed directly to God without a priestly mediation from their husband. There are female heroes um, such as Queen Esther or this striking woman Deborah who leads out an army in the end, uh, or Ruth who goes on to become an ancestor of David and of Christ. So we see this, uh, extra these extraordinary stories preserved by the tradition, um, affirming women, and yet somehow the Bible is often seen as being patriarchal, keeping women down in some way. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, um, in, in the very words of God, God is seen um, comparing himself to a woman giving birth. It's extraordinary. And Isaiah 66, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. I was giving a lecture at the University of Vienna last term on this subject and speaking afterwards to um, some of the feminist society who'd come and they found it extraordinary to, to hear another perspective of, of even the Old Testament. Well, what about the New Testament? What do we see um, in the New Testament? Well, the cultural context, the conservative context, is thrown into our view by a throwaway line in John's Gospel, chapter 4, in verse 27. We read that um, Jesus is talking to this woman at the well and, and his disciples have gone away and they come back and John tells us his disciples were ret returned and they were amazed to find Jesus talking to a woman. That gives us the context of the culture within which Jesus conducted his ministry. And um, he, he displayed an extraordinary attitude to women. He had female disciples in a culture where women traveling around with a group of men and having the status of a disciple would have been questionable. Jesus has a number of women included in his traveling circle. Luke tells us some of their names in his gospel. 
He um, even uh, gives us the detail that these women actually financially supported um, the male disciples. Uh, so they even had the purse strings, which was interesting. We see that women, women were taught by Jesus. He had uh, women who sat at his feet, Luke 10, verse 38. And that's a, a well-known phrase, a stereotypical phrase describing the process of theological instruction that went on between a rabbi and a student. We see uh, an encounter, a woman called Martha, who's the recipient of one of Jesus's most astonishing theological statements in the New Testament, one that um, you'll hear at every funeral service you go to. John chapter 11, verse 25, spoken to one person, a woman. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. It's, it's um, extraordinary. Jesus acts in a countercultural manner, um, affirming the feminine. He, t he taught and spoke using both male and female imagery. In Luke chapter 15, we know the famous parable of the prodigal son, the lost son and the running father who goes out to meet him. Well, earlier on in that chapter, Jesus depicts God as if he were a woman on her hands and knees in her house looking for a lost coin. So following on from all that, we also see that women played an important and uh, prominent role as historic witnesses to the central events surrounding Jesus Christ. If you think about it, without women, we wouldn't have Christian theology. That's a radical statement, but, but listen on a little more. Mary, the Virgin Mother of Jesus, is the only witness to the Annunciation of the Virgin Birth of Christ, the Doctrine of the Incarnation. It was a group of women, the Gospel writers tell us, who stood at the foot of the cross witnessing the death of Jesus. Watching Jesus die, recording his last words for us. Think about Good Friday. I don't know if any of you will go to church and and hear a study, a meditation on the seven words from the cross. Well, how do we know what those words were? Because a group of women stood at the cross and witnessed the atonement, watching Jesus die. And it was a group of women who first witnessed the resurrection of Christ. Again, striking to notice this in a context where the word of women was perceived as having less value than that of men. It's enormously important and significant that the events of Jesus' death and resurrection were primarily witnessed firsthand by women. By way of kind of um, on the side, this is strong evidence, I think, for the veracity of the gospel accounts. It would be unconscionable that in the ancient world, someone fabricating a historical event would have chosen to put female witnesses front and centre in their story as the first-hand eyewitnesses. We could talk about women in the early church, we don't have time, as teachers of theology, deacons, leaders, prophets, and possibly even an apostle. And of course, um, there are other passages too. But we don't have time, so you can ask questions about that if you want to. And so I want to just finish the, the bit that I'm, where I'm kind of speaking to you with a question. And the question is, what will we do with the testimony and witness of those women and men who've passed on to us the story of the incarnation of God?
that the God who created the universe entered history in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. What will we do with their witness to us, both as the first eyewitnesses, but also those who then transmitted the historical texts to us, who preserved the writings um, with such amazing dedication? What will we do with with their claims that, that Jesus of Nazareth didn't just live and give us an example, a moral example of, of what God is like, but who actually died on the cross, that atoning death, offering us forgiveness, offering us the hope of eternal life. If Jesus died on a Roman cross, as those women testified, and offers all forgiveness, all people forgiveness through his sacrifice, Will we think about it for our own lives? Will we read the gospel accounts preserved for us um, by, by people who copied those manuscripts? And will we make an informed decision about Christ ourselves today and invite him to be part of our lives, not as a distant, historical, dusty figure from 2,000 years ago, but a meaningful presence in our lives today? Thank you for listening. <laughs>